0: This week, Dan Allen from HP Wolf Securities is with us to discuss HP SureClick Enterprise. Then, Will Loon from ForgePoint Capital joins us to talk about the state of venture capital in the security market. Finally, in the enterprise security news, Fortress InfoSec raises $125 million to help critical infrastructure improve security. ThreatLocker raises $100 million thanks in part to Kaseya's breach. Obsidian raises $90 million to secure SaaS use do Control raises 30 million to possibly compete with Obsidian. Blue Shift raises a seed round to bring SOC and XDR to small businesses. Strike Security raises a seed round to take a different approach to pen testing. Tama Bravo is still working on an Imprivada exit. The biggest startup failures of all time. How many security vendors are on the list? Is the is the SEC forcing CISOs into the boardroom? And Finally, better but harder to collect security metrics. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly.
1: This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Workloads protected by VMware are the safest workloads in the multi-cloud. Private cloud, public cloud, any cloud. Stronger, with distributed protection to the API and everything east-west, inside and cross-cloud. Stronger, with three layers of detection, trusting nothing and seeing everything, even the best hidden bad actors. Stronger, with an SE Labs AAA certified advanced NDR that brings the multi-cloud together for the win. You've got workloads. We've got security. VMware security. Simply stronger. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more. Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Help Systems helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automations. Take your engagements to the next level by pairing with Cobalt Strike, a threat emulation tool ideal for adversary simulations and Red Team operations. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy
0: Innovation Day. This is episode 270, recorded on Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I got the date right today, Katie. I'm your host, Adrian Sinabria, and joining me is Mr. Tyler Shields. Hello, and
2: pleasure to see you again.
0: Do you, you go get those uh, those drops in your eyes today or something like that to, to dilate your eyes? Or are you just, are you just too cool for, for school? I had to do something to raise my coolness
2: profile because I don't have the hair that you do. And I just, I needed to do something.
0: It's working. I like it. <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting today's happy innovation day. Um, not a day I would have expected them to have, but uh, pretty cool to call out innovation. Uh, maybe something we overuse in this industry, a term we overuse, well, in tech in general, probably a little too much, but um, definitely uh, one of my favorite things. I love love seeing what people do with technology. Also joining me is Katie Teichler. How are you, Katie?
3: I am well, happy Innovation Day to you too.
0: Yeah, what, what are, uh, Okay, for Innovation Day, what what Tyler and Katie? What are your favorite innovations of all time, well, or recently, or just whatever comes to mind?
3: Best Personally, innovation.
0: Uh, we're well, all stumped. We're stumped. Well, we well, while like, you focus on innovation here. I, I've been raving. I actually sent a tweet earlier today, kind of raving about this, and I do it for two reasons. One. I want the company to stay in business because I like the product, and a lot of products that I love have just haven't caught on and gone out of business. I tend to be an early adopter on on technology. This is a remarkable tablet; it's basically designed to be like a, re- a replacement for paper. So when I need to mark up a PDF or just make notes or whatever, yeah, I do it on this instead of uh, using a notebook or printing something out and scribbling on it. Uh, so it's. Uh, change my day-to-day workflow I, I use hundred percent less paper than than I used to uh, so that I would be
2: my... buying one Adrian so I may just have to do it based on your recommendation alone
0: they're expensive but I think that's what it took to make it so thin and so slick and, and work so smooth it integrates with Dropbox and Google Drive like they've been adding a lot of really cool features to it
2: You'd think you'd think as a as an investor an angel investor I would have a good list of innovations but all of my innovations would be super boring like cloud or you know uh, container workloads or it's like eh, none of that's real so I think my favorite innovation if I'm going to set aside all the stuff that you know is the you would expect me to say it's got to be the IoT connected toilet it's my favorite innovation I'll never use it I think it's dumb as hell but it's really kind of a neat innovation. We were talking the show innovation? started,
3: and I think, I think menus going online so you can, well, for your mobile device, the QR code, it's not terribly innovative. It was just used in a different way when the pandemic started. So hmm. if you're out at a restaurant, you can scan your menu. You don't have to touch a menu. It's fantastic. I love it. Not the most innovative say- thing, but it has been life-changing.
0: It's interesting because uh, I've heard people say probably more people hate like 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 get excited when menus came back because for them that's friction I guess like like extra stuff that they have to do they don't want to look at their menu on a tiny phone you know I don't know I think it's, it, an yeah, opportunity. it's interesting
3: to
0: I think
2: you don't have to touch a menu that,
3: that a million other people have touched
0: sure I, I well, don't I don't really care that about there, that.
2: there's I would argue that there's an opportunity there for um, for restaurants to do something truly innovative and make an interactive menu, make something neat or cool versus just saying, oh, we replace paper by allowing you to single click to a PDF. Do something interesting there, like, you know, creative graphics, visuals or even like an interactive menu where orders can be placed.
0: I've seen menus that are just like there's a glass surface on the table and they're just under the table.
3: If it gets to the point where they are tracking me and the minute I walk in the door, they order what I want based on what they know about me, I'm out.
0: <laughs> Sign me up. I'm in. That'll be Panera. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it. Panera will be the one to, to jump on that. They've been uh, very exploratory with technology and been pretty successful with it. I think they would be the first to do that.
3: Okay. We'll talk about it again in five years. See if they've innovated
0: yeah, yeah, or 18 months <laughs> as, as the trends tend to go. All right, a few announcements here. Uh, do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. Uh, we always enjoy doing that. It's a fun process. We can all get together and go through the, uh, the submissions. Uh, Also, I just want to throw out a quick announcement there. I'm one of the founders and uh, still one of the organizers for B-Sides Knoxville. We're having our eighth uh, event uh, on May 13th. That will be Friday the 13th. And yes, we are leaning into that as a theme. And uh, tickets are currently on sale. You can check them out at bsidesknoxville.com. If you're anywhere in the East Tennessee area, uh, we, we have a fun time. Come on by. And they're 25 bucks. you know, besides cheap tickets. A lot of value for the money. Okay, today's first interview is sponsored by HP Wolf Security. And today we're talking about HP SureClick Enterprise. We're excited to have Dan Allen with us today. Uh, He's the VP Enterprise Security Solutions at HP and has over 20 years of experience in technology and delivery of software services with a focus on virtualization, security, and application delivery. He came to HP via the 2019 Bromium acquisition and joined Bromium back in 2015, when I was still an analyst, actually covering Bromium and talking to Bromium. So really interested uh, for this conversation today. Welcome, Dan.
4: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, great to have you here um, and and jump into this conversation. So, you know, it's it's interesting. We talked about, there's probably a hundred different ways we could come at this topic. But, you know, you're wanting to come at it from the zero trusting, you know, and I'd like you to maybe start out explaining a bit why, you know, why you want to come at uh, endpoint by talking about zero trust, because it kind of seems like the reverse of how you would normally think of uh, zero trust in in architecture. Like, maybe that's the last leg that you would think about.
4: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And so it really you think about what we're doing here with our technologies and zero trust is it is the the reverse of how zero trust is is viewed today. I actually like to call it bi-directional zero trust because when you think about zero trust today, everybody's focused on how do I make sure that my applications, my services, and my data repositories do not just implicitly trust end users and devices. I wanna validate that those end users are who they say they are, they're really on the device that they say they are, they're coming from a location that I trust, et cetera. You know, whereas why should you as an end user on a device trust a piece of content? Why should you trust that website? Why should you trust that email attachment that, that you're opening? So I think we need to spin zero trust around so that it has a 360 degree approach where we're valid, you know, thinking of it as mutual trust or, or bi-directional trust. Right. Right. Yeah, it makes sense.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, all the components of zero trust are pretty important, you know, so it's, um, and, and I, you know, I think one of the important things about it, you know, like, like we, we had a uh, former, uh, Forrester analyst, uh, on a few shows ago, I'm, I'm going to blink on his name right now, you know, but, um, as much of a trope as it is, you know, we talk about zero trust being a journey. You know, but one of the nice things about zero trust is that um that you really don't have to like like it doesn't need to be this huge waterfall approach. You know, you don't have to do all the components yeah. at once. You know, you can break it down into smaller bite-sized, more manageable pieces. You know, I think that's that's part of what you're you're getting at here.
4: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you you could implement things incrementally and, and you get value as, as you do that. You don't have to approach things from a, a big bang or an all or nothing approach.
0: Yeah. Um. So, you know, where, where would you start with that? Um, and, and well, actually first let's, let's talk about how endpoint fits into zero trust more, more specifically. Yeah. Um, you know, how you can leverage uh, an endpoint security product, you know, to, to, Reduce that risk, you know, tor- towards that goal of what Zero Trust is supposed to do, you know, allowing only what's what's truly necessary uh, for, for the uh, uh, for the average employee or, or endpoint, uh, you know, without getting in their way.
4: Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I mean, the, the way we look at it and we were trying to structure our 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 solution here at HP is coming at it from the end users perspective. Because at the end of the day, you know, while we think of security from a technical uh, perspective or as a technical challenge, and that that is true, the reality is, is it's also a people challenge, right? How are most breaches started? They're typically initiated through some sort of a user action, right? The user's being, you know, tricked into opening an email attachment that they thought was a legitimate invoice, but turned out not to be a legitimate invoice. The user clicks on a link that they Thought was from a trusted source, but it's not from a trusted source. And so, you know, users, as they're using these PCs today, they they really shouldn't be the ones to make the security decisions. If we're relying on, on a human being to make the final decision as to whether something is good or bad, you know, we're, that's a battle that that we're ultimately going to lose. So, you know, I like to say that we, sh- we need to stop blaming end users for breaches or worrying about... Trying to train them into not not opening something that might be malicious because at the end of the day, if I work in finance and my job is to open up email attachments that are invoices and process them for payment, then you can't get mad at me when I opened up an email that I thought came from somebody I knew. What happened was is there was a weaponized payload inside that that fake invoice. It's not it's not the user's fault. And you think about you know the, what we're asking users to do. And I like to use the the invoice uh, example because, you know, I still work with our sales and services teams and we we had a large deal for, you know, almost a million dollars of, of a software sale. And guess how we had to process this, this renewal opportunity from an invoicing perspective, our finance team gave me the PDF and I had to email it to the customer into their finance department. I mean, that tells me everything I need to know. Like, there is a large multinational company that has a user whose job it is is to open up email attachments to pay invoices, right? And so can we really blame that user when eventually he opens up something that, that might be malicious? So step one is to focus on stop, you know, take the blame away from the users and give them the tools that they need to be able to safely do their job.
0: Yeah, I remember doing a webinar uh, for a client back when I was at 451, and I called it a, a minimum safe environment for employees. You know, that's really yeah. what we need to give them. And easily, my least favorite trend that I've seen in security in the last decade. Yeah, I, I don't even have to think about it that much. My least favorite trend are employees getting fired for clicking too many phishing test emails, like failing too yeah. many of the, the, the phishing tests. You know, it's it's absolute madness i think you know especially with it's already hard enough to retain uh employees you know to to create a an environment that employees want to stick around in but for firing things that like we didn't hire them to be good at resisting really good social engineering like if we hired based on that we wouldn't be able to hire anybody like that's hard
4: absolutely and everybody I consider myself a security professional. I've been doing this for a long time. About four months ago, I got uh, and I get lots of you know, lots of friends on Facebook and lots of messages on Facebook. And people send you funny links and you click and you look you look at them. Somebody sent me one and I clicked on it, and I immediately was like, "Oh shit! I regret that decision." You can <laughs> I, feel your face I, going I, white. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Oh boy." Now you know it turns out this was just a a standard fish trying to get credentials out of me. But the paranoia that I have, I I actually factory reset my phone. I'm like I'm not taking any chances. I then went and I I opened the site in in a uh, in an isolated browser so I could determine what it was doing, etc. But I clicked it. I clicked it. Right. Yeah. I'm a human being. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to make those mistakes. So. How could I hold a user accountable when their job is to open email attachments and sometimes click on the links they get from email to know that that is a a legit email or not? It's just, that's a losing battle. So we have to stop blaming users and again, get them the tools. And that's what we do with our SureClip technology. I describe it as a safety net for your end users. So your end user doesn't, and we don't want them clicking on you. We do want them showing some degree of judgment But at the end of the day, you know, let them open it, but let them open it in a safe environment, and and that's where our zero trust container technology comes into play.
0: So, it'll probably never be possible to you know completely encase employees in a bubble. You know, it'll also always be possible to do something you know that's uh, like like we've seen B B C scams are particularly hard, uh, you know, to to protect against because there's no payload the payload is, um, psychological, you know, it's, um, yep. Hey, we're, we're moving this payment from this bank account to the, to this bank mm-hmm. account. So you detect bank accounts now and, and basically you're doing DLP and it's, it's, it's really tough, but let's talk about some of the low hanging fruit here. You know, the stuff, attacks that are used all the time that a product, uh, like, like yours, like, like sure, sure shot can, uh, protect against.
4: Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the most dangerous things your users do is open up Office documents that come in as email attachments, or Office documents that uh, you know come in as links where the users then downloads the document from some random random website, and it turns out to have a malicious payload inside of it, or users being tricked into downloading. You know, I, I still people still stopping threats for Flash Updater.exe. I'm like, the Flash is even a dead technology, but yet people are still getting tricked into, hey, in order to see the content on this web server, you need to download and run Flash Updater.exe. So, at the end of the day, it's it's that those common things: email attachments, scripted or executable file downloads and those sorts of things that users are being tricked into downloading because that activity is part of their job and their workflow. So isolating those those high risk elements can go a long way in reducing reducing your attack surface and nothing's ever gonna be perfect. You really wanna reduce it? Don't, don't connect to the internet, right? But yet we know that that's not a viable solution. So it's, it's about just reducing the risk to the smallest threat vector we can get it to and cutting out a lot of that unnecessary noise that these users are clicking on.
0: Yeah, and apologies. It's sure click. I called it sure shot. That sounds like a transformer. I don't know
4: <laughs>
0: my brain. I like that
4: sure <laughs> shot though. That's a, it's a good name.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Maybe a name of one of the technologies built into it. You can name it after my mistake. Um, yeah. So so. You know, another thing I think that's been challenging, you know, with the uh, pandemic and people moving back home, you know, how do you tackle the problem of people using their own systems, BYOD? You know, do, do you have, um, you know, is licensing flexible enough that that a license for a single user means I can put it on more than one of those users' devices? How, how do you handle that kind of situation?
4: Yeah, I mean, our software is just licensed per, per physical device, but... Uh you know, we, whenever customers, especially customers that are buying at volume, um, you know, we have the ability to put in, you know, contractual arrangements that can best meet their requirements. So, you know, some of our customers have mixed VDI environments and physical laptops. And so so we, we do have a degree of flexibility in, in how we can uh, address that. At the end of the day, we're typically focused on, on, on installing on the, the primary Windows devices that, that the end user uh, uses for, for access.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, Katie, Tyler, any questions? Yeah, I, make I, sure I, I don't have a couple the,
3: questions just stepping back, you know, more to the, the zero trust layer and, and talking a little more generally. You know, we've been talking about zero trust for a while. It came out as buzzworthy and then people, you know, sort of started accepting that it's a thing that they should build into their processes, they should look for solutions that help them achieve that. Um, but as, you know, as Adrian talked about, and, and I think Adrian and I talked about this, I think we shot a video on this at Black Hat many, many years ago about how, you know, it's a stepwise approach, you know, you don't have to start zero trusting everything. Um, Where do you think people are along that scale? There's been some pushback against it, not because nobody thinks it's a good idea, but because implementing the principles of zero trust are actually really complicated when you've got these big, massive, sprawling networks. So where do you start? How far along have people come in the last five, 10 years?
4: I think it really depends upon how far along the customer is in their journey towards cloud adoption, right? So if you've got large legacy infrastructures where you're managing your data on-prem or you're still doing, you know, SIF shares for all your file repositories, you're kind of in a world of hurt for how you go about implementing zero trust to protect that legacy architecture. You know, thankfully, and I think the pandemic has also helped accelerate this people are adopting cloud solutions, right? Migrating away from the legacy way of storing the data and getting their data into, into proper SaaS-based repositories, whether that's, you know, OneDrive, Box, Dropbox, you know, whatever your, your SaaS solution of choice is, um, as you move to those cloud platforms, it's so much easier to enable zero trust approach to a cloud system than it is a legacy system. And so I, I, I would, you know, a lot of customers just need to just if they haven't started that journey towards getting, you know, migrating into the cloud, that's kind of step one is stop trying to secure your own infrastructure and and move it into a place where you have more tools that are at your disposal.
3: So in terms of how this is being pushed forward, who's who's doing this? Is it. The cloud engineers? Is it the network engineers? Is this coming as a top-down level mandate from CISOs and their teams? Who who are the ones driving both the architectural changes as well as some of the purchases for tools that align with zero trust frameworks?
4: Yeah, I think thankfully it's both. Really, you know, when you think about you know what's driving cloud, you know, security is, is part of it, but I don't think that's the number one reason simplicity and cost. I mean, who wants to be in the data center business? You know, if, you, if you're if you a large, you know, food manufacturer or you do any business, you want to focus on your business your business isn't building giant monolithic legacy data centers. So, you know, having, you know, using cloud architectures and letting somebody else worry about running that data center That's been a priority from the CIO level, right? And a business decision to to move out of the data center business and absorb it as as a cloud service. Thankfully, that action opens up a whole new realm of options and how you go about securing that data, right? And that helps make zero trust architectures much simpler and faster to implement. So on the zero trust side, you know, that's normally being driven out of the CISOs office to figure out, let's hey, let's, let's get a zero trust architecture to secure these cloud services. But the migration to cloud, you know, security was a side benefit. I think really it was just more of a financial benefit of get this giant CapEx exposure off my books and let me consume data centers as a service going forward.
3: So do you think that the move to cloud, I mean, obviously, a lot of companies, if like you said, most have started migrating, and most organizations use at least hybrid, hybrid cloud, if not multi-cloud, and there are some newer, smaller companies that are perhaps um, 100% cloud. Do you think yeah. that facilitated zero trust, or do you think there are other, you know, do you think it's the expanding attack service, as you said, with SaaS? Do you think it's a combination of all the above?
4: I would say it's a combination of all of, of all the above, right? You know, the, the migration to cloud sort of opened up an opportunity to, to more easily and effectively implement technologies like Zero Trust. Although, you know, a, a lot of the uh, vendors out there, you know, their Zero Trusts aren't totally dependent upon being cloud. They can actually implement Zero Trust architectures on, on your legacy infrastructure, much more complex. I'd just rather put my legacy infrastructure, you know, Shut it down, migrate to a cloud native first approach, and then and then go secure that. But I, I would really say it's all of all of the above are motivating factors in in moving to the zero trust architecture.
0: Yeah, and and speaking of capex, uh, you mentioned before, you know, and kind of the decision to go for zero trust and and uh, find budget for this kind of thing. Um, how do you fit? I'm trying to get an idea of how you fit in with other endpoint security technologies. You know, so I, I presume, you know, most yeah. companies that that buy uh, SureClick, you know, probably have some kind of next-gen AV, they probably have, yep. might, might have some kind of EDR. Uh, d- do you work alongside those? Do you, can you use data from those products? Do you have any any integrations there or, or you know, are you designed to just fit in alongside them?
4: Uh, we, we could definitely integrate with those technologies and, and we, you know, when I think about what am I gonna run on a Windows desktop in order to to have a comprehensive security stack? It really comes down to three key technologies. First, you need a good EPP solution, right? And that's where your your AV and GAVs, there's a lot of great vendors out there, a lot of new vendors up and coming in this space that are are doing some fantastic things on being able to to really just stop the threats to to begin with. But we we know that's never gonna be enough. So you also need visibility, which is where our you know EDR and, and and all the MDR and XDR services come come into play. Because at some point, something malicious is going to run, and the EPP solution is not going to flag it as being malicious. And so you need to spot when that happens, right? When that device starts uploading data at you know ten megabits per second to some server in a in another hemisphere that the end user's device has never communicated with before alarm bells should be going off so that you can take some some kind of remediation action so you you need those visibility tools we believe that there's really a third layer and that is that this is where our isolation technologies come come into play so why are you running that piece of content on your device in the first place right did the user really need to open that email attachment on their on their PC? Couldn't we move the execution of that attachment into a secure container? In the case of SureClick, we run the container on the device because we think it provides a, a better user experience. But there are technologies where the the, the website or the the, the file that, that wants to be downloaded can be rendered in a container uh, in the cloud. And that's perfectly acceptable as well. So isolation really is that third leg of the stool that completes the stack. And so this is where we play. We don't replace any of the you know, EPP, we don't replace EDR. You, you need those as good foundational elements. And then what we do is we step in and then we fill the, the, the gaps by getting that high-risk content into an isolation chamber. And we've structured our products so that we feed that data out because we collect a lot of rich threat intelligence because we're, we're, we're monitoring what happens inside these containers and so that generates a lot of rich threat intelligence that we can then feed into your other systems. I'll, just, I'll give you an example. So imagine that you know, a user clicks on a, 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 an email attachment, we run it in our container, it has a malicious payload. Well, the device isn't compromised because we simply just destroy the container and the malware goes away. But we, what we do, do is, is collect the, all of the, the hashes of the payloads that ran All the IP addresses that that container was attempting to communicate with, the behaviors, the techniques, the tactics, the registry keys it was trying to modify for persistence—you know—it's like running a little honeypot. And we give you that threat data. And so, what our customers do is then feed that threat data into their visibility tools, their EDR tool, to say, "Well, has that hash run outside of a container anywhere?" Do I have another PC that's already been compromised running that? Are those registry keys present on any of the rest of my fleet outside the container objects? And so we architect our, our tools to be able to feed that rich threat data off to those other systems to make those other systems uh, more valuable and effective.
0: Yeah, uh, is anything uh, you want to share uh, that that we haven't covered so far before we wrap here?
4: yeah I would like to mention we've also launched a new product just recently called our sure access technology um it's it's built upon the sureclick engine but you can think of it as the 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 reverse of container trust so today what we do is we take that thing you don't trust that malicious email right that might have a malware in an attachment and we run that in a container so the container is something you do not trust. But we've actually pioneered the use of, you know, what we call trusted container technology. What if you wanted to connect to an application or a server where you actually trust that application and its data more than the the PC itself? So we, we have the ability to run hardened containers where, like, I could be an admin launching uh, an administrative session to to a web server or Microsoft RDP or an SSH session, and I can, now I can run that inside a container as well, run my trusted session in a container. And then if I have any malware existing on my PC, we hardware isolate that trusted container away from the operating system so that the, the operating system itself has no ability to see what's inside the container. So you know, we've been doing a lot of work, you know, and, and it all comes back from the intellectual property that, that we were developing at Bromium around how can we leverage the power of containerization in these virtual containers to solve new and and unique challenges that that our customers face. And so we're excited to announce that. And we've got another containerized solution out there for solving another set of challenges that that our customers have. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: very cool. Taking it to that level, I can think of all kinds of use cases for something like that, you know, especially if somebody's uh, like even analysts within security, you know, you know, you're going to be potentially handling Something that's that's uh, untrustworthy, or a lot of customers like you can train them to the point to where they, you know, they get that feeling. They know, like, I prefer a little more security before opening this yeah. this attachment. You know, and giving them an option, uh, you know, to make that call is great. Absolutely. All right, awesome. Uh, very much appreciate you coming on today, Dan. Thank you for joining us uh, on Enterprise Security Weekly.
4: Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate it.
0: And make sure you visit securityweekly.com forward slash HP Wolf for more information. And stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk about the state of security with Will Lynn from ForgePoint.
1: Endpoint security is designed to protect every device in your fleet, wherever it may be. These days, that can be a lot of different places. Find out how HP Wolf Security uses emerging strategies like application isolation, along with a zero trust approach and framework to give you a powerful, manageable, usable solution to your growing and increasingly spread out security challenges. Learn how HP Wolf Security can make a difference across your endpoints at securityweekly.com forward slash HP Wolf. Hey everyone, this is Paul Asidorian with Security Weekly. I'm super excited to tell you about our latest partnership with Intel. Intel's vPro platform, you might have heard of it before, as it's been around for 15 years. IT and security teams have so many challenges, including trying to keep your computers up to date with patches, making sure all the hardware and software is working for your remote employees, and of course, keeping things secure as possible intel's vpro platform is designed to do just that make it easier to keep your fleet of computers well maintained and as we all know a well-maintained network is absolutely a more secure network join us for an interview with yasir Rashid, global director of enterprise client sales at intel on may 12th as we explore the features and solutions provided by the intel vpro platform visit SecurityWeekly.com forward slash intel for more information. Welcome back to
0: Enterprise Security Weekly. Join Paul Asidorian and Rich Mogul on May 4th to learn how to choose the right architecture for your application. Live attendees at this webcast will have the chance to win a $100 hacker warehouse gift card. You can register at SecurityWeekly.com forward slash webcasts don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on demand. All right. And for our second interview today, Will Lynn joins us to talk about the current state of the cybersecurity market. Uh, this is something I wanted to set up for a while. And me and Paul talked about mm-hmm. setting this up for a while back when he was still running uh, this podcast about how, how it would be great to have a um, you know the an invest, investor viewpoint. Uh, on the show, you know, since we talk so much about M&A and fundraising and new markets and uh, and trends and things like that. And uh, it, this will be the second time we've had Will on. And he is the managing director, a managing director and co-founder at ForgePoint Capital. Uh, and ForgePoint is a VC that is entirely focused on cybersecurity investments. Not a whole lot of those, but uh, we are starting to see a, a couple more pop up. And he's also the founder of the Security Tinkerers, you know, which is a group that uh, I'm a big fan of. I'm, I'm a member of that community. It's a nonprofit that brings together InfoSec professionals to share, mentor, create opportunities for the community and for the next generation of leaders in, in this industry. Uh,
5: welcome to the show, Will. Hello, hello. Uh, thank you for having me, Adrian. It's always fun to, uh, to have these conversations with you. Recorded yeah, this yeah. time. <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: Really? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so many good conversations that go on that, uh, that never, we never get to share. Um, yeah. So, so today, you know, I wanted to, I'm trying to figure out where to start here. So one of the things that we've been noticing is that there's some new categories, uh, in security. And, um, I think, uh, you know, starting out here, DSPM is 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 definitely one of them, and I know it's one that you're you're pretty passionate about, and you're you've gotten involved in. Um, so DSPM stands for Data Security Posture Management, and it's um, I think it makes sense to to kind of uh, to latch onto that uh, CSPM term. We're we're starting to see that used a lot because posture management does make a whole lot of sense, um, and, and it is related to cloud. I understand as well. But uh, what, what
5: kind of drew you to this category, Will? So we've been trying to figure out what to name this category or what direction we wanted to go ourselves um, at, at ForgePoint. Um, so um, the company that we invested in sort of as a founding investor is a company called Symmetry Systems and we're wearing their jacket today. And this is an investment that we made about three years ago. And back then, the sole focus was hey data stored in public cloud is going to to require different solutions um, it's going to have different problems Um, and this is an interesting problem that we would like to try to figure out how to solve Um, especially when you consider how important data is to whether or not um, uh, into an organization right like One phrase I say often is the difference between a security incident and a a data breach is data. Uh, Once you lose that data, especially if it's PII, HIPAA, PCI, et cetera, that's when you you need to start getting lawyers involved and regulators will start wanting to get involved as well. And so, of course, data being stored in cloud is going to be something that needs to be protected. Um, I'm really happy it's landed at DSPM and exactly to your point. Like the way you phrase it is exactly right, right? Because when you say data security in cloud, people sometimes you will think, oh, are you talking about SaaS? Oh, are you talking about DLP? Oh, <laughs> like there's all these different versions because it is it is a little bit too high level to just say, hey, cloud data security. Um, and so in that way, I thought it was brilliant that we were able to, uh, that Gartner, I'll give them credit for, for coining DSPM, um, was able to draft off of the momentum already around CSPM uh, into this space. Um, I think the next step will be fun, is that uh, next is figure out what the heck does DSPM even mean, Like, right? What do you do? What What is the outcome? What's the result? How do you do that? How do you get there? What is the best company? What's the best version or style that fits for me as a, as a customer? And so there's still a lot to get figured out on the DSPM route. but at the highest level, um, it is focused on hybrid slash public cloud uh, security, and specifically looking at that security with a data lens. And,
0: and if I'm to guess, you know, most of these um, most of these approaches start out the same way. People don't know what they have. They don't know where it is. You know what state it's in. You know, so I imagine uh, step one here is is some kind of data discovery. And then some kind of effort to identify what kinds of data that that you've discovered.
5: You're exactly right, right? Yeah, I mean, I think when you, um, I usually I love looking at NIST CSF framework. You know, um, we we also have the version of uh, the cyber defense matrix with Sunil, who's also a fellow tinkerer. Um, I've also mo- modified that for Forgepoint's purposes and simplified it. But I really like looking at that model because when you start looking at a new category or a new set of problems or new assets that you want to protect, it is really nice to be able to bucket into those five um, use cases. And I agree with you; almost hundred percent of the time, the number first one is going to be around visibility inventory. You can't protect what you don't what you don't know you have. Um, in some unique cases sometimes it goes straight to firewall where, okay, I'm not going to focus on data in motion, for example, I'm going to focus on uh, data at rest. I'm going to focus on data in motion from the very beginning. Uh, But because of how cloud is architected um, and how much data is already in public cloud and hybrid cloud, it it made so much more sense to start with visibility. Uh, So data at rest versus data in motion. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and generally, you know, I remember saying when I was at 451 that data would be the last category that we tackle, uh, or data security specifically, just because it, it's such a tough category, you know, because there's so much of it, putting controls around it makes it harder to use and making data harder to use then tends to break workflows, slow down businesses. Um, you know, it, it's just been a big challenge. And it's interesting now that that we, we are yeah, I, I think maybe it speaks to the maturity of of cybersecurity in general. You know that that we're starting to see some more concerted efforts to to tackle data security.
5: Yeah, and actually, um, you know, the point that you made is a phenomenal one because, for instance, um, I've made three investments in data security, for example. Um, so whether it's structured, unstructured, on-prem, you know, IT, public cloud. Um, uh, on your endpoints um, on your servers, you know've I've sort of built sort of a comprehensive suite of solutions, and I think I could probably go with some more. I have three now. I could probably make another three to fill every single potential data security problem that there is. Um, because I on a macro theme, um, I, I do believe in data security being sort of one of the key uh, industries that people will go to after endpoint and identity and all that kind of stuff. So to your point, I fully agree with you. I think the biggest thing that data security vendors in the past didn't do a great job at was that a lot of them went straight to protect and preventing things. And so that goes to your point, right? Which is like now things are harder. It's harder to do business. It's harder to do what you you should or you want to be able to do because there's all these controls in front of it. Um, so I personally prefer, uh, not going to protection until it's a very well-known problem and it's a problem that everyone understands and they're not going to sort of, you know, be upset if you do it. So I think DLP is the closest version of that where, um, you know, generally employees know that the content that they're creating at work is valuable. And, um, and the company wants to protect it and prevent it from being leaked, both accidentally or purposefully. And so although they don't love that there's just a DLP solution um, that's actively monitoring for data leakage, they are willing to accept it. Um, but for something like this, where we start at visibility, um, prevention is probably going to be the last thing we do. And it's a lot like IDS-IPS, right? Like almost no one turned on protection on the IPS front. 95% were on IDS. And so that's, that's going to be a very similar situation here as well. It's going it to be very visibility and detection focused initially.
2: So Adrian, can I jump in here with a real quick question?
5: Um, Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So uh, I'm going to open with a comment, actually. Uh, I think you're definitely right. I think, you know, the the impact of like cloud transformation, movement of data into the cloud and uh, the eventual complete erosion of the perimeter. Right. And, and what becomes the perimeter? Well, the perimeter becomes is protecting the data most directly, right? And that's kind of the, you know, the result of that incredible shrinking perimeter down to the data set, where there is now a need for data security technologies and data security uh, in a general sense of the word. Now, traditionally that's been very, very difficult to achieve. And quite frankly, I think your commentary you just made on the, um, the commentary you just made on the, the specifics around um, uh, the, Protection, not going towards protection, but instead focusing on visibility detection is 100% the right way to to tackle this because if we can't build that fundamental visibility detection and ability ability to see what's occurring, protection is a a guaranteed fail and will become a friction point and eventually stop that whole market from growing. My question is, um, how long do you think that transition takes and is this, a, is this a situation where we never get to it? Similar to IDS IPS problems, exactly as you've identified, IPS never got turned on. Is this a transitional state where it's like, hey, we're just going to maintain visibility, react, track, and react whenever those situations occur? Um, or do you think we'll actually turn on protection at some point in the future? And if so, what's that timeline look like?
5: Yeah. So I love drawing parallels to the endpoint space when I think about this. Um, you know, I think that for... I think that out of all the different spaces or controls within security, Endpoint feels to be the most mature. And so you can sort of look at that as an inspiration for the other layers as well. Um, and so will we ever get to prevention, protection? Yes. Um, we'll, well, okay, let me take a step back. We will get there in cloud hosted data. It'll probably take a very, very long time. And the key catalyst that will turn us from wanting to go from detection to prevention is going to be significant pain. So lots of incidents where people are losing data because of of it being hosted in the cloud. People are hiring lawyers and incident response and, um, and they're dealing with regulators where that pain is so high that people can start going back to their organizations and say, Hey, this is just unacceptable. We can't let this happen and be, chasing uh, response all the time and so that that's um so i predict that minimum at least five years out more realistic 10 13 years out when we, we can actually get to real prevention and by then who knows where we're going to be hosting data <laughs> maybe we'll be hosting data and like you know chips in our brains at that point i don't know just making some weird sci-fi analogy right because we keep on changing things over and over again. And so I think it takes a really long time to get to prevention. And we will get there with regards to cloud hosted data. But when that point comes, we might be thinking about data stored in another medium as well.
0: And I, I think part of the difficulty here is what I like to call the, the, um, you know, the customization tax. You know, so there's only so much a vendor can do to make product work for your scenario, for your data, for your workflows. And to get to prevention, I think that piece has to get into the product somehow. Like you have to, you know, the product has to understand how you use this data. You know, to really fully understand what rep- represents an anomaly, what's good versus bad. You know, th- those kinds of situations. And I think that's that's where a lot of this stuff really gets uh, challenging because every environment you go into. You know, there's there's some some institutional knowledge there and and somebody at the SOC or somebody on the security team will tell you, Oh yeah, that's a false positive because we do this weird thing. We've got this weird product that does something that looks malicious, but it's not, you know, or or whatever the case might be. You know, like ideally we do it this way, but this thing works that way. So you know, we've got to disable certain things in, in our security products or we've got to make some kind of exceptions. So, I mean, ju- just my, my thoughts on why I think it's, it's so hard to, to make that leap to trusting something automated to, <laughs> you know, not send a piece of data or, or to not allow somebody to, to view it or, you know, to, to make some kind of active decision on something.
5: Yeah, I mean, even going back to DLP, which has been around for such a long time, right? You think about um, the reality is most of the incidents or most of the events are actually let through through on the DLP front. Um, And what happens afterwards is people go and they go look at whether or not this was actually a data loss or not. And then they figure out what was lost and then they go and remediate it. the the times where it actually blocks something from actually being shared is when it's so obvious. (laughs) Like, you know, no PII should ever leave a healthcare company ever, right? Like, especially if Mm -hmm. you're in these groups, like then, yes, okay, turn on blocking. But uh, even DLP isn't 90% automated blocking. It's something significantly lower than that.
0: Yeah. So you do have a, you know, as as you're you're, you're proudly wearing there, you know, you do have a, a company you're backing in the space. Uh, for folks not uh, familiar with DSPM, you know I think we've uh, we've talked about Polar before. Uh, we maybe mentioned Eureka, but Symmetry Systems is the one that you've backed, correct?
5: Yes, yeah, So one that we backed, and in fact, one that we've helped incubate. Um, so we joined the company when it was two people, and I remember all these conversations around like, "Hey, where do we want to focus in this data security journey? How do we want to get there? Who's going to be our pers- who's going to be our target customer? Uh, what problem are we actually going to be solving as well?" And so, three years of thoughts. Um, every other company in this space you know, was started in the last ten months or so, and so. Uh, I'm hopeful <laughs> that they have, they're they going to need some time to catch up. But as you know, innovation is inherently disruptive, so we can't count on it.
0: Yeah, yeah. The pace of the industry is, is crazy. You know, I'm kind of tempted to jump to that, but I, I wanted to talk about a few other new categories here that I found were interesting. And, and one of them is the one I... I, I Most people seem to be calling it um, SaaS security. You know, i see that's what's on most vendors' websites. I think you had an acronym for it, but I've been jokingly calling it CASB 2.0 because that's how it feels to me.
5: Yeah, so I actually think there are multiple companies in SaaS security. Um, And, you know, the way I think about it a little bit is you sort of take sort of the whole endpoint network uh, identity data and all these different sort of assets, I guess, um, and apply it to, to SaaS. And then, what does that look like? And so, uh, to your point on Casb, right? What well, that Casb is, in my mind, it's a combination of network and data security. Um, and um, and there's a lot of hacks or a lot of hacks that industry had to do in order yeah. to be able to provide those two use cases. Ugly hacks. That ugly, right? Like all the reverse proxies and split key, you know, encryption and DLPs and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so will there be a Casby 2.0? Probably. Um, will there be a much better architecture than what's currently being done? Probably. I mean, it, it just has to happen just because SAS is here to stay, right, in terms of us using it more and more. Um, and I personally haven't formed an opinion yet what the right, well, I actually do have an opinion, but it's early enough that I'm not going to say, this is the future. I'm going to say, this is the hypothesis. Um, people really wanted to avoid putting an agent on the endpoint for SaaS security in the past, especially when SaaS was yeah. picking up. That was such a common co- pro- problem, right? Like people talk, oh my God, I have 20 agents or nine agents and I can't have agent- agents anymore. And so when Casby first started, that industry or those customers hated agents. And so thus CASB 1.0 cannot have agents. Yeah. And that's what's resulted in the infrastructure it has today. I hope that Casby 2.0 will be more accepting of agents because the performance hits that people feared or experienced back in Casby 1.0 are no longer the case. Um, and so my hypothesis is that Um, the next version of CASB um, will be provided via an agent because it gives you the best visibility and control and scalability. Um, And then I think what that will mean is that it would also split the network portion of SaaS security into its own bucket of companies. Um, I think it will minimize the size and importance, the network security, uh, part of SaaS security. the network is more broad than just SaaS security anyway, so it'll be fun. that industry will be fine. And then I think what will also happen next is the vulnerability management space of SaaS security will also become more important in the future. Um, and so the acronym you mentioned be- that we talked about before is SSPM. So it's another posture management category, SaaS security posture management. Um, and I think that space will pick up in importance. I'm still trying to decide if sspm will become so large that it'll be able to support multiple public companies i haven't formed, i haven't solidified my decision there yet or my my hypothesis there yet but i do think that it will be an important enough category that uh people will want to educate themselves on it they'll more, more likely than not purchase something in the space they'll use it um and then um perhaps it gets acquired by Know, another company, but they'll probably keep keep using it uh, over the long term because of how, how much stuff is in SaaS now.
2: So, uh, with regards to SaaS security, will you? I, unless I misheard you, which I might have, you did say that that agentless is the way to go. So, what's the collection mechanism? API collection through all my SaaS vendors that I use to pull that asset or data or metadata information into a platform that looks at configuration metadata and stuff like that. Is that the vision for this market?
5: So uh, and sorry, uh, so SAS 1.0, I think it was agentless um, and oh. it had to be, but I think SAS 2.0 might actually be a, with an agent.
2: Um, and how does that agent happen to reside? Would it embed into the SAS vendor's product or how does that actually operate? Uh, on that point
5: uh, or on the different uh, devices. Oh, the the, the, the okay.
2: customer,
0: of the SAS product, yeah. Yeah, because this uh, like Casby started out as as a like shadow IT discovery, you know, like find out all the SaaS apps, you know, all the places your corporate data is going that you don't know about, and they would ingest your firewall logs or you know proxy logs, whatever, you know, and tell you all the SaaS applications that your your employees are using without permission or something like that, and then it moved into you know, more the the management of it. Like we can we can give you additional security controls that your SaaS vendor doesn't give you. Or maybe you, you don't like the fact that there's a chat mechanism in this one SaaS app, we can delete that. Sure. You know, basically in line, we're just removing a feature of the SAS app that disagrees with your, you know, corporate security requirements or what have you.
2: Yeah. So I definitely now get it in theory, understand understand what you're saying. But now I want to talk about and double-click, Will, on on market dynamics with regards to that. Doesn't it make sense then for the endpoint vendors since they're already on endpoint with agent in in line that they can extend into this market as a natural adjacency? Yes,
5: I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, so uh, I think the space is early enough where you say, hey, you know, SaaS security will be uh, instrumented using an agent and everyone with the agent will say, yes, (laughs) I want another market to cover. Uh, and so they'll be delighted mm-hmm. to, to be on that front. And then the people who are anti agent will say no because there's so much activity that's happening in SaaS in the SaaS app itself that the endpoint agent will never have visibility into. Um, and so I agree with that point. But instead of saying, hey, we need something to monitor all the activity that's happening in the SaaS app itself, that's when the SSPM part for me comes into play. Where let's use a vulnerability management lens on the, what's happening in the SaaS app instead of a network security lens.
0: Oh. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because, uh, like, I've had this, I covered CASB very closely when I was at 451. That was my very first category that I covered, and I covered it right when it was starting in 2012, 2013. And I um, had a lot of conversations where, where basically, you know, we, you know, if you want the best coverage, it's going to be have to be some kind of hybrid model. Was the conclusion that we came to? Like certain things, you only know if they happen if you're looking at the API. You know, like for example, you know, if I share a file with with a uh, somebody outside my organization, you know, if you've got something capturing an endpoint or a proxy, you're you're not going to see that kind of stuff. You know, that that stuff happening. Um, so there's there's all this stuff that you can only get from the API. So, you know, I think any full solution here is going to have to be API plus something else,
5: or at least they, they
0: convinced me of that back then.
5: <laughs> no, and, I, and even this SSPM, they inherit all the SSPM companies inherently are API based, right? They're plugging into the APIs to look for configuration issues. And so they can also look at all the activity that the API provides you as well. And so, you know there could be a company that does exactly to your point where they have an agent on the endpoint to do the endpoint related stuff and then they also have um uh, the api based version of doing what they're doing and one company could do both but it could also be two different companies um, as well it really depends because for instance let's you know crowdstrike on the agent side edr side will crowdstrike ever get into the sspm space where they're looking at all the apis from all these SaaS apps, and then giving you alerting and configuration um, sort of uh, improvements on top of that. Maybe one day they will do that, but that's that's pretty far outside their core, so unlikely. And so I think it'll be two different companies, uh, but both um, both very important businesses. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, yeah, I think the last one here, um, the last new category I found was interesting are enterprise browsers. This one just hit me. Just I, I was blindsided to this. Uh, it was another category that I covered, all, all the kind of, you know, you run this uh, tiny agent and your Chrome uh, browser is actually running in a, in a data center somewhere. You know, with the idea being, you know, if something malicious happens there, you know, we can shut it down, whatever. You know, so there's this whole secure browser. Um, well, I say whole. It wasn't a huge market. It was maybe 10 vendors max back in the day. None of them had a ton of, of funding. You know, like I, th- I think everybody understood it was kind of a niche use case um, and, and had some, you know, this kind of idea of isolation uh, had some useful use cases. We, we actually had... Um, um, somebody who originally worked for bromium uh, was our our first interview today so clearly that that niche still exists you know HP acquired that product uh, some of these still exist stuff like Menlo security but um, but yeah these new enterprise browsers uh, are, are different it seems like a different approach where they're, they're focused more on I, I, I don't know what do you, what do you think about this market you know it seems like it's more about Adding controls that don't currently exist in browsers, you know, giving you more control. But they also talk about performance, uh, li- like like uh, making things easier on the employee as as a potential value prop for this thing. So not even necessarily a security value prop. I've been having a hard time getting getting my head around it.
5: Yeah, you know, when I was struck right before I was talking about CASB 2.0, uh could potentially be instrumented to be an agent. You know, the folks in the secure browsing world would be like, yeah, it, it is, <laughs> it will be instrumented via agent, you know, a secure browser. <laughs> um, and so, um, so there's a possibility that secure browser is that architectural change that enables um, both, you know, SaaS security and other, other ones. Uh, the secure browser's argument is, hey, you know, before we had all these agents doing different things on your operating system, on your endpoint. Why well, don't instead of putting it on the operating system, let's put it on the browser? Because browser is how we do all of our work, and so you know your data security, your network security, your endpoint security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's put that all in the browser instead of on your actual operating system. Um, and so that that's the pitch. It sounds really compelling. Um, for me, I'm still digesting whether I agree that that's going to be comprehensive enough uh for large enterprises and for the foreseeable future my current gut reaction is more likely than not these secure browser companies are going to take their browser slash agent and they're going to do things outside the browser once they're on these endpoints in order to provide complete coverage for all companies Um, and they have to provide complete coverage for all companies in order for them to become as big of a business as they aspire to be. Um, so that, that is my current guess. Um, and so it for me, it feels like a sneaky way of getting an endpoint agent <laughs> on your yeah. on the operating yeah. system versus, hey, now everything's happening in the browser.
0: I mean, some of the use cases I saw shared, you know, worried me a little bit, you know, because they're talking about enforcing, you know, the way customers do one thing or another. And, uh, you know, the first thing I thought is, OK, so now, you know, almost immediately with this product, we're going to break somebody's workflow and they're going to look for a way around this product. They're going to open a, a different browser or if we're preventing that, they're just going to go to a, a different device. You know, and, and we end up pushing the problem, um, you know, making the problem invisible rather than solving
5: it. Yeah, I completely agree with you completely. I mean, I think. At its core, right, when you think about user endpoint, whatever, you know, IT more centric related security problems, like at its core is MDM, like, like you're mm-hmm. what you really are doing is you are deploying things onto these things, making sure they're deployed and making sure they're doing what they're doing. And so, um, you know, my opinion is that you should make the MDM as amazing as possible. Um, like a little mini SIM, <laughs> for instance, on each endpoint. That's obviously efficient, you know, not crazy like our modern sims. Um, I think that would be much more interesting in my mind. Um, uh, And one that's scalable, works across all these different operating systems and legacy, new small devices, et cetera. Anyway, this idea I just said is probably like five, six, seven years out. It's a pretty long time before we're going to do that. And perhaps before I even get there, Microsoft or Apple or Google or someone makes it a reality as well. Um, but yeah, the, the secure browser, uh, I'm still, jury's still out for me. Um, the historical customers to your, exactly to your Bromium Menlo were financial services customers, as well as federal customers, you know, they more or less uh, survived off of those two key verticals. And so... I have seen financial services customers or ex-financial services customers say really good things about secure browsers. And for me, that's not a surprise, right? This is a better version of what they've seen in the past. What I'm really looking for is, um, you know, CISOs in other verticals, lean in strongly and say, oh my gosh, I need this yesterday Um, and not in the short term, because in the short term, there is quite a bit of hype right now that's being created for these companies. I'm more interested in what, how, this, how aggressive they lean in two years from now or three years from now. Um, and we'll be able to see how important or how true or how right this bet is when we look at renewal rates and upsells and all that kind of stuff. But for now, people are leaning in. People are experimenting, some people are even purchasing and using it and deploying it and, and being positive references. And so I think this is uh this is the beauty of innovation, right? Someone's someone's taking a bet, they're betting uh their careers, they're betting um their relationships, they're betting dollars that investors are providing them or their own. And you know, I think the best thing we can do is hope that they're successful, hope that they prove um prove that they're right. Because they will inherently. Uh, if that's, if they're right, they'll have created value for the whole ecosystem, not just for them.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I follow this space and have followed this space for quite some time. And you blew my mind a minute ago <laughs> in a very positive way by equating the browser to the agent. Never occurred to me we can abstract the agent. Me off neither. The OS, yeah. Bring it up into the browser level. I literally had that moment of, oh, shoot. Okay, yeah, I see where he's going with that. But really, I, I get it. But if we put ourselves in the value of the of the company, there's no delta in value between being at the at the at the core kernel, user land, or browser. It makes no difference as long as it's enforceable, non-bypassable, et cetera, et cetera. It makes no difference to the buyer. All the buyer cares about in this market is transparency of the user experience, meaning it looks no different than if I just use my normal browser. And that's why the proxy-based protections. Or agent-based at the kernel level protections have taken off and done so well because they're transparent to the user. The user doesn't even know they're there in an ideal world. Now, obviously, when the agents blow up, suck down too much power, too much memory, things go sideways, they get pissed off, and, and that's when you know the agents get a bad rap. But if you create the agent, no matter where it lies in a truly transparent manner, then it doesn't matter where you put it. And if you put it in the browser, that would be the only way that I would see that this would be a successful market, is if that browser experience is literally identical. You can't tell the difference between your browser and a general Chrome browser, then maybe it becomes a successful way of implementing something that's already achieved at the OS layer. So I'm not sure that it overtakes it because there's you know, a hurdle on UI and not much difference in value add by
5: moving it up higher in the stack. Fully agree. And that's, I think, the, the cost risk to this market is that everyone's building on top of Chromium, right? And so if they want to provide a similar if not better experience than Chrome, they need to have as many engineers or more <laughs> or more than yep. Google. So <laughs> that's going to be expensive. Yep.
0: Yeah. And it's crazy market. We've got, uh, you know, two companies in this market, you know, for people listening who aren't familiar with this, uh, the market that we're talking about, uh, the two key examples here, at least the only two I'm aware of are Island and Talon and uh, quarter billion dollar, uh, uh, quarter billion dollars of investment in them, like hadn't heard of an enterprise browser as a thing three months ago and already uh, quarter billion dollars in this in this space, and it's uh, it's just crazy how how quickly this happens. But um, but yeah, in, in the old market, like with um, isolation on the endpoint, you know, Bromium and Vincia were really the only two in, in that market. So that was another kind of two player market. And Vincia did a pivot out of it and uh, went towards next gen AV instead, and got acquired uh, for for a pretty good amount from. Uh, uh, by Sophos, so uh, I'll be interested to see if more jump in here because I think you need a lot to even building on top of Chromium. Like, still the engineering effort here is huge. All right, um, yeah. Let's move on to let's zoom out a little bit and you know, Will, something I wanted to to get your opinion on. You know, and I, I think we've talked about this offline quite a bit. We've talked about on the show. Uh, quite a bit. But just the the state of the market right now, the size of valuations, the size of, of uh, some of these rounds where we're seeing, you know, particularly, you know, I think Island is a great example here. They raised a Series A and a Series B back-to-back for a total of $215 million. Uh, And then we saw a bit of what looked like, uh, you know, maybe pulling back a bit, you know, but I think we talked about that being just in later stages. You know, what, what's your view of the health of the market in general and, and whether or not, you know, do, do we have, you know, too much money in some of these late stage uh, rounds or the valuations too crazy? I mean, surely they can't all have public exits. And, um, you know, what's the general health of the market here? We might have lost Will. We're seeing.
2: Well, while we wait for Will to come on, I'll go ahead and answer that question. The markets are crazy out of whack. There you go.
0: (laughs) All right. Moving on. Next question. Hopefully (laughs) hopefully we get, uh, yeah, Johnny, uh, Gus, let me know if we get uh, Will back. But. yeah. So okay. so
2: Adrian I only said that I only said that half joking. I will make a little bit of commentary on the state of the market myself because I do watch it fairly closely. Obviously, I'm not as in depth with will, and I would love to hear his answer to this, but I feel like we've seen such a compression uh, in the last three to four months in the public markets that the impact on um, on privately held companies and the ability to catch super high valuations um is absolutely compressing and getting squished down. We've seen companies like Airtable take a 50% write down on their valuation. We're seeing, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not a security company, but it's a reasonable high tech, high growth company that we can comp against. Yeah. And since cybersecurity companies in general have been so overvalued compared to non security companies as well, um, I don't see how some of these massively funded companies can continue uh, to, to have those valuations in the current state of the public market. So it would not surprise me if in the next six months, we start to see some write downs on some of these late stage, you know, uh, stage E F G companies that are valued at, you know, anywhere from, let's say eight to 30 billion in a privately held space with negligible
3: revenue. So
0: yeah,
2: approaching
3: a few companies that have done write downs, uh, in the recent past, and I've heard from certain people in the industry that they think that's a terrible idea, they think it's a deal killer, they think that companies are perhaps positioning themselves so that they'll never get funding again. What's your opinion on that?
2: Yeah, I can definitely comment on that. So these write downs for these late stage companies that are you know, valuing themselves down at 25 to 50%, the reason is they can't attract talent. They can't hire. Because if you are valued at 80 billion on 20 million in revenue or something ridiculously tiny it's going to be impossible for you to hire as a company because everybody looks at it and goes for me to get upside we have to go from 20 million to 200 million just to justify the valuation and and i'm making these numbers up they're not accurate but i have to have some kind of astronomical growth rate on revenue before i can get any upside on my equity that i'm making by coming to this company and i've actually you know been talking to um uh to People that we're recruiting for for Jupiter One who are talking about other companies that they're interviewing at going, yeah, I'm not going to company X because they're valued too high and there's no upside for me. So I think you're going to see such a crunch in the the talent market, not wanting to go to these overvalued companies, that the write downs are going to make it possible for them to, again, have the ability to recruit.
3: Perhaps, but do you think the perception of a company who writes itself down is that, uh oh, they're in trouble? Um, I'm talking yeah. strictly about perception.
2: Yeah. So so it depends on how they're managing the business. If they're managing the business with that money to at least have a path to profitability and create a business growth model that is sustainable on their current cash, um, then it doesn't matter, right? Um, because they're going to build a company that's going to be sustainable profitable and and have great hope potentially great growth rates over time and eventually will ipo and they will get past that 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 markdown pain right um but i understand your point and there will be certain companies that take that that internal write down or value write down and then don't manage properly to a to a break even or a profitability stage for the company and then it will be harder for them to raise again because they will have had to either accept a cram down or a write down for a bunch of late stage investors that are now underwater.
0: Yeah. So will pulling you back into the conversation here. Um, welcome back. You, know, will. you can get, <laughs> yeah, you can get the, uh, yeah, no, no, no problem. Uh, we, yeah, we, we, we just, uh, we just rolled in, we were rolling into the next topic. So, so it, uh, it worked out pretty well. Um, but yeah, we we're talking about the, you know, we're approaching 60 unicorns in security. They all can't have IPO exits. Um, you know, crazy late stage uh, uh, funding and you know, maybe seeing a little bit of a correction, but maybe only in 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 the later stages. So wanting to get your opinion on on kind of the the overall health of the security market. You know, do do we have too much late stage funding or are those do all those valuations have to be rewritten basically? Um, you know, what, what, what do you think?
5: Yeah. Um, so whenever I think about this kind of thing, I, I really like Warren Buffett's way of thinking about the world, which is he invests looking at GDP um, growth and valuation growth. Uh, more or less, that's, I think it's an oversimplification, but, um, but you look at those two in conjunction with each other, right? And so valuation isn't growing as, fa- growth isn't happening as fast as GDP. Theoretically, uh, things are undervalued and vice versa. If valuation goes up significantly faster than GDP, then things are overvalued. And so GDP in the security industry is, is spent. Um, and then valuation is the, is the companies that are involved in uh, garnering that spend um, to solve problems. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to say <laughs> valuation growth is significantly higher than uh, yeah, security uh, budgets. And so inherently there are going to be uh, there's going to be a correction. Um, and my personal feeling is that it, uh, we were we've been the industry has been insanely aggressive. And so I can't decide yet where the inefficiency uh, or where things are going to fall down. If things are going to fall down because valuations were too high, and so when they raise the next round, inherently they won't be able to achieve, you know, the, the same lofty goals no matter how quickly they grow. And so it's not a nice straight path in terms of valuation growth. Or if it's going to be a situation where there's just too much funding and too many companies, so it's so inefficient. And so companies um, don't grow as uh, capital efficiently as they could have, and thus they're not going to be worth as much or perhaps, um, yeah, and so there's going to be inefficiency there. Um, or, and I think the third one is just sort of a combination of the two, um, but also different enough to call it out, which is just around sort of like high risk, high reward kind of ideas. And so what happens is, you know, we're, we're of course in the, in the flip side of high risk, high reward is also high loss. Um, and I think it's pretty safe to say that we've been in a high uh, risk scenario. And so there are. Likely going to be companies that still do incredibly well, um, even those, even though people took on such high risk and so well that um, you know even at a billion dollar valuation and a hundred x revenue multiple to get that to that billion dollars, for instance, or you know the you know last year sometimes even more, um, where people are still going to do incredibly well uh, because the market's still growing that kind of thing, but that's going to be. Uh, a smaller portion than the companies that um, do incredibly poorly. And my personal experience has been that when you take this high risk tightrope situation, you know, there is usually no safety net. Um, And so those companies, uh, like usually in security, most companies have a safety net. And even though the downside scenario, everyone's walks away. Okay. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. So we're actually going to get to that. that
0: that's going to be my last question is around that point, okay.
5: actually. Okay. I'll, I'll, pause, I'll, pause. but yeah, I think yeah. there will be, I don't think there will be 60 public companies in security, right. For instance, that's just not reasonable, not realistic. Um, I want there to be. Yeah. It means uh, if, the, if it does happen, that means the industry has exploded in growth and we will all be better for it. Uh, but I think it's it's hard to say that's likely going to happen.
0: Right. Yeah, and it's um, and, and kind of my final question here. You know, they were, a couple of days ago, earlier this week, uh, CB Insights came out with, uh, with an article profiling 224 of the biggest, costliest startup failures of all time. And there's not a single cybersecurity company on that list. You know, so kind of the final point, the final question here is, wh- why do you think you know, I think it's like the general 80-20 rule in startup land is, is that uh, 20% succeed and 80% fail. And it really feels like that's completely flipped in security, you know, like even being conservative, you know, that, that uh, you know, maybe 20% fail, maybe it's even less than that, it seems like. And by fail, I mean, you know, no nobody acquires the IP, like, like it's, you know, it's a it's a total write off. Like like, uh, you know, I mean, we we see security companies um, sell for less than they raised, uh, but you know, more often than not, it seems like uh, seems like they're successful. So the question is, you know, what makes us more resilient? Yeah, I and I don't know if it's going to continue. You know, like like you said, the, like, you know, with this many unicorns, I'm not sure if that can all be absorbed, but. What, why is security so resilient here in startup land versus other verticals? Or, or it, it, is that just a bias for me covering the industry? And maybe that's not actually the case. Maybe I'm just not seeing all the failures.
5: Yeah. And um, you know, I think it's a lot more fun to talk about consumer failures um, or you know, failures if companies are just much more understandable, um, including like, for instance, Theranos, for example, or WeWork even though those aren't consumer, they're still fairly understandable businesses. Um, You know, cybersecurity has such a huge learning curve, means that if you want to cover cybersecurity, (laughs) you have to cover cybersecurity. There's a lot to learn. Um, And so what I think that means is uh, some of the failures in security don't actually come up in use. Um, And... um, and so I think there's so there's an underreporting component to all that. Okay. The the second one I think it also has to do with the industry as a whole. You know, I've been in security for quite a lo- long time now and I still remember when security was not popular or interesting and it was a niche and you know like people thought that they were going to uh, people you know even entered they didn't want to specialize in security because they thought it would uh, not be a good long-term career path for them, for example. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, we decided to start a security-only fund. So right. <laughs> we we obviously bet the opposite direction, but, uh, and obviously that's worked well. Um, and so what that means is there is also underfunding in security, in my opinion. And if it's underfunded, then it's also a lot easier. There's also a lot less of inefficiency, and um, and also means that companies will get out sooner um, as well. So, you know, there are businesses that were slowly growing to $10 million being sold for $100 million, you know, when the industry is underfunded, that same company would have raised $100 million in this market. Um, and then some, for example. And so the acquirer, Uh, In that scenario is not going to buy this business for a hundred million dollars. They're just going to let it go to zero because, you know, it's on a death spiral. People are leaving. People aren't happy. You know, founders have all this drama. Customers are saying negative things. You know, I think as an acquirer, if I was in that scenario, I'd just say, I'm just going to build this myself. You know, why take on, let's say, for instance, $200 million of pain when I could just build this internally myself? So this goes back to that, um, that analogy I brought up in terms of the tightrope, you know, where there isn't a safety net, um, it's really hard to save a company that has inefficiently spent $200 million. It's very unlikely that that $200 million spent is going to, that company is going to get acquired for $200 million.
0: Yeah. All right, uh, Will, this has been amazing. We appreciate you uh, being generous with your time and, and coming to chat with us uh, uh, about these new categories and and uh, state of the market and, and all this stuff. Thank you.
5: Of course. Always happy to share. And these are all hypotheses. I could be wrong. I, in fact, I love being wrong. <laughs> yeah, be I wrong. mean, that's... That's the whole purpose of the conversation
0: here. you know. I think we're definitely seeing a lot of stuff that um, we haven't seen in the past. Security, well, I, I think that's why, at least that's why I'm I'm in security is everything's new and it's always changing. So it never gets boring. And, and that's my greatest fear is to get bored in, in a job. <laughs> so
5: great,
0: works great. for me. All right, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be right back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news.
1: Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with ExtraHop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how ExtraHop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's Extra H-O-P. Picture your team being able to map out the external attack surface as it grows and see the same attack vectors as a hacker does. Most tools out there do asset discovery, but stop there. Enter Detectify. It takes an inventory of exposed web assets and automates vulnerability testing for security misconfigurations, expiring subdomains, and risks in third-party software. Here's the cool part. They crowdsource payloads from leading ethical hackers. It finds bugs you actually want to fix and finds them in time. Start a free two-week trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash detectify. Go hack yourself. Imagine this scenario. You're out of the office unexpectedly and a colleague pings you because they need access to some system you have credentials for. Now my listeners would never send passwords over email or Slack. But what about your coworkers? How many organizations out there are sending logins back and forth in plain text? Worse yet, how many just store all of their logins on a shared spreadsheet? Keeper Security's password management platform locks down logins, payment cards, and more in a patented zero-knowledge encrypted vault. Sign up for a Keeper free trial today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Keeper.
0: Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Before we get to the announcements, we'd love to welcome our new sponsor, Xtero. Can your incident response technology collect from off-network endpoints? Xtero FTK Enterprise can. Endpoints are no longer located in a physical office, and organizations need a comprehensive investigation tool that enables holistic data collection and review. With FTK Enterprise, you can also scan for IOCs and MISP indicators, you can scan with Yara rules and you can use integrations to trigger automatic endpoint collections. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash XTERO, that's E-X-T-E-R-R-O for access to their white paper incident response for a remote world. All right, with that, a uh, few announcements here. Security Weekly listeners save a hundred dollars on your RSA conference full conference pass. RSA will be live in San Francisco, June 6th through 9th, 2022. Security Weekly will be there delivering real-time live coverage and interviewing some of the events' top speakers and sponsors. To register using our discount code, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2022 and use the code 52UCYBER. That's 52, the letter U, CYBER. We hope to see you there. Also, don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. You can visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. And also, it really helps us out if you leave a review. Uh, If you are watching on YouTube, for example, if you uh, like or subscribe, uh, leave some comments, join our Discord server, and, and uh, send us some, uh, some comments there. Uh, we, we check that out live as we go through uh, each of these podcasts. And it's just great to hear back more from you. You know, the, the podcast is kind of unidirectional sometimes. Like, we're shouting things into a microphone, and, and we hope people are listening and liking what we're doing. But it's always great to get feedback. Uh, anything we can do better, uh, anything we're not covering that you want us to cover, you know, giving us, uh, you know, telling us guests you'd like to see on the show, all, all that would be great for us and, and really helps us make this this podcast better for you. And now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW270 uh, to check out the news stories for today. Uh, we've got links to them. Uh, I usually spend a couple of hours going through each item and typing up uh, some thoughts on it, some basic uh, thoughts on each story. We don't always get to each story, so if you want to go check that out, you'll you'll every week you'll see a couple that that maybe we didn't have time to cover, and um, <clears throat> and yeah, actually, you know, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of the sources that I use to gather these news. Uh, securityweek.com does a great job of of covering new M&A deals. Uh, so does the Term Sheet newsletter, the Strictly VC newsletter, both great. And there's a new one I started following. A guy named Mike uh, over at Return on Security runs the security-funded newsletter. Uh, and that, that's a great one. Uh, every week, he puts together stats on, uh, on the security industry. Uh, he, he does a great job of categorizing everything, you know, kind of like how I put the stories in the order of fundraising. Uh, he puts it together there. Uh, Tyler, I think you'd love that newsletter.
2: Yeah, no, I know Mike very well. Actually, I've, I've known him. Oh, you do? Started that newsletter. Yeah, he's a great guy and his research is fantastic. I, I'm actually going to message him right now and let him know we, we dropped another uh, uh, promo for him. So I'm sure he'll be excited.
0: Awesome. All right. Um, yeah, lots of funding today. How many funding items do we have? We've got 13 funding items. Um, so I'm going to go kind of... In reverse here, number thirteen is a weird one. Tomo Bravo uh, tried to sell off Improvada, but then the pandemic happened and they uh, they canceled that effort. And it looks like they're kind of gearing up to do it again. They they picked them up for five hundred forty four million in twenty sixteen. Uh, they were hoping to get somewhere around two billion, you know, quadruple their their investment in twenty twenty. Uh, not not bad, half a billion dollars per year, uh, you know, over a four year investment. And then, um, but yeah, now, two years later, uh, they looks like they made an investment in them so that they could acquire a company called SecureLink. Uh, so it looks like they're ramping up to to maybe exit improvata in, in again here.
2: yeah, the timing on this one it's just the numbers are so big it, it, it always blows my mind with some of these PE deals that they can be dumping such huge sums of money in, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they figure out how to, you know, either leverage financial leverage, redo the financial side of the business, re-architect the execution side, trim the fat, or do something that gets them to a, to a better profitable situation with higher margins and higher return on investment. And then they're able to flip it X number of years later for, you know, hundred percent bump in, in valuation. So, you know, there's always the the roll up approach to private equity as well, which we might be seeing here, uh, pulling in one or two or three companies, rolling them together, and then providing yeah. something that's uh, that's an outsourced value bump from there. So, kind of neat to see how these things, uh, you know, happen over time from uh, 2016 through 2022.
0: One plus one equals three, is the the idea yep. there? Yeah, that's right. All right. At the top of the funding list, we have Fortress Information Security, which I was not familiar with before this. Uh, they actually had fairly modest uh, raises before now, and I think they had like a a low double digit Series A, you know, something like uh, eleven million, and then Series B was like thirteen or something like that. Like it, the Series B wasn't even double the Series A, and then all of a sudden, uh, private equity investment of one hundred twenty five million. Uh, and they're, they're kind of interesting. They're kind of like a GRC plus risk management plus vulnerability management uh, all in one portal. And they're very focused on, you know, they, they say they've got 40% of the electric grid in the U.S. as customers, uh, uh, electric utilities, and kind of focus on that critical infrastructure space with, uh, with government, um, water, electric, uh, manufacturing, stuff like that. So, interested to see what they do with the 125 million. They could either, you know, go into other industries, or, you know, I I think the the thing that would make the most sense is for them to take it more globally and stick to their niche.
2: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, right? Because to see a funding round of twenty in 2015, they started in 2015 with with their seed round of six million. Followed by 2017, a 13 million A. Followed by 2019, a 16 million B, and then 125 million. Right? Yeah. Most likely, that's that's majority purchase. Um, tough to know. It depends on whether they issued issued new equity to execute that, or whether they did secondaries to execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that went into the pockets of the founders to liquidate the business, and you know the the, the previous stockholders, or how much of that went to operating capital is always a question. We won't know. Um, but you know the question is, uh, are they going to be able to leverage $125 million investment to, to begin to capture some of this market? And then the second point I had when I read this article is, did they catch a big raise, a big round by, by pivoting or, or changing their messaging to supply chain attacks and just all of a sudden that's a hot button and they're able to get a multiple that was higher than they've traditionally gotten? I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. Um, but the article on on VentureBeat, I think, is kind of a mediocre article because they're they're equated to Synopsis as a primary competitor in the global supply chain market. Oh, it, it, it's as ridiculous. As well as Palo Alto, it's ridiculous.
0: It, yeah, yeah, I saw that and. Um, Immediately, you know, I'm I'm sorry, Venture Beat, <laughs> but like like that that put you way down my list of uh, like when I'm including stories here. Often I see multiple outlets uh, will will cover a fundraise, you know, and, and like this is just so off the mark, you know, yeah. that now when I see Venture Beat, like if it's Venture Beat or somebody else, I go somebody else, because it's just uh, I don't know. I mean, the other side of it is 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 it's almost kind of funny, like how much they they don't understand the space. Because uh, synopsis yeah. is, is first and foremost a like good a
3: question, ch- and I I don't remember if we were talking about it last week or I was talking with somebody about it in a completely different forum. But it's the actually Tyler, I think we were talking offline about it uh, about how a lot of the market for SEO purposes to get in line with analysts, they aggregate as many of these terms as they can. Yeah to be relevant, to get mm-hmm. noticed, to get sales introductions, to get funding, to get whatever. And it looks almost like in this article, that's what the writer did was take, oh, they say they're in this space, let's look for other companies in this space without actually yeah. cross-checking to see if that's true. And that's a big problem in our industry in general, not just in VentureBeat. I know I just took a complete left turn, I'm yeah. sorry. But, <laughs> <laughs> in terms it's of it's of it's good for you to have there, maybe that's it.
0: Yeah, it's good for you to back them up a little bit because yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason all of us were analysts, like had jobs as analysts, in my opinion, is the security industry is really tough to understand. So we shouldn't hate too much on somebody from the outside that uh gets gets the comps wrong right
5: yeah
3: it just it just might be completely confusing and that's a result of the market and a number of mechanisms sure. yeah. at work all conspiring to make it worse in in, in terms of confusion than it already is
2: yeah 100 agree with you 100 agree with you this could be a mistake of i don't understand the market and anybody mm-hmm. that said supply chain anywhere i'm just going to put into this as primary competitors Which clearly they're not. Like, if you know anything about Synopsys, Palo Alto, um, and and this particular company, they're not direct competitors. But you're right, Katie, in the sense that we can also bring up the problem with marketing to SEO, meaning letting SEO drive how you want to market. What that can do if you're not careful is cause significant confusion in the market. So, Palo Alto and Synopsys might have put out pieces about uh, this particular, oh, I know Synopsys did because they are closer, but Palo Alto definitely could have done a piece, you know, on supply chain because they wanted the SEO crunch. They wanted the hit that comes with that. They wanted the, the brand uplift and that results in market confusion. That's where you have to be from a marketer's perspective, careful not to let SEO drive your positioning.
3: And in in this author's defense here. I don't know this person. Um, but the way that media works now and press works now, so relating it back to vendors trying to get some airspace, everything is rush, 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 rush. Maybe this person was under a tight deadline from someone else and it was a completely unrealistic deadline. Maybe it was to get his name out there. Who knows what the driving factor was? But it's I don't think we can necessarily pinpoint the author as, oh, you just did this horrible job. I think there are so many factors that go into it, and it's been coming for a long time that this kind of thing was bound to happen, not just to him. I'm sure it happens to many. It's happened to me. I've miscategorized stuff, of course. I'm not the smartest person on earth, but um, there are so many market pressures that come together that cause something like this, that said this doesn't work at all and this just this just helps to misinform the market so every yeah. time something like this happens it makes the confusion worse
0: yeah i mean it's it's not hard to go to Synopsys' website and see that appsec is basically a side hustle for them and their main thing is semiconductor design or something you know i don't even understand their main well, business but clearly <laughs> the bulk of their revenue is is not from their security products,
2: right? And Palo is the same way. But there's, there's, there's Synopsys side hustle is huge. But that in air quotes for those that are just listening to audio, it's huge um, in the sense that it's huge for a niche market called AppSec, right? They're they're a major player in AppSec, but they're not a four billion dollar AppSec company or or supply chain company.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, good conversation to have though because it's um, yeah, it, it's tough to cover the market, you know, but you know, it, ha- having done a lot of writing, you know, about companies, you know, you got to do your due diligence before you hit that publish button, but especially article.
3: if something like this may affect whether or not you get funding, whether or not you get customers, yeah. because it really can. If, If potential buyers, if potential investors start seeing, now this is an external writer, but I'm talking from an internal PR marketing comms perspective. If you position your company wrong enough times, you're going to hurt yourself. And Will alluded to that as well in his comments earlier.
2: Yeah, you know, we, we at uh, Security Weekly, at Enterprise Security Weekly, we have the highest journalistic integrity, and we <laughs> pre-read every single one of these articles with a fine-tooth comb for hours before we get on the show. We
0: never miss. Yeah, my I have redlined them on my Remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> They're all redlined here, every word. So are you Whoa, getting paid for these placements?
2: What's hug. going on here? Are you getting paid for ad placements here, Adrian?
0: No, I, I want the, it's a small company out of Finland and I want it to stick around because I really like the product and I, I'm sick and tired of my favorite software products and gadgets uh, dying. <laughs> I think you need to reach should we, out. Should like we you're, now you're, flip
3: to number 14 for that reason? What's
0: what is number, number? 14? Yeah, yeah. Children so, so that for the was,
3: biggest, costliest startup failures of let's all time. Do that
0: one. Yeah, so that was actually um, kind of the crux of the last question that I, I threw to Will yeah. Lin in our last interview. And when I saw this pop up, like the first thing I did is, uh, okay, I'm going to search for cybersecurity companies. I wonder if there's any cybersecurity companies on there. Didn't see any. And 224 is a lot to scroll through. And I just.
3: There were some pa- adjacent spaces though, Adrian.
0: Yeah. I paged up and paged down through the bulk of this and, and didn't, didn't find, uh, didn't really. So, so what, what did you see that was adjacent? I'm curious. Maybe oh, I missed God. something.
3: There are 224 companies. Um, there was a networking company, Procket Networks that was in there. GigaOM, again, Adjacent, not exactly. Um, there were a few more in here as well.
2: So Adrian, as you went through this list, does, when they say the biggest failures, does it mean they went to zero and got zero out of the business? Uh,
0: in, yeah, I, I think in, in most of these, they, they just, they closed up shop. Wow. Okay. Yeah. These were
2: true, true failures. That's a lot of burned burned money when you look at two hundred and seventy five million in six hundred and seventy five million in better place. Woo! Like
0: ja- Jawbone, maybe Jawbone sold um their IP off to somebody. You know, so Jawbone made like Bluetooth headsets and speakers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like, yep. um, you know, like maybe so- like somebody like that. You don't close up without selling off. You know, your your patent <laughs> portfolio and you know, IP and stuff like that, I wouldn't think. Designs, like there, there's a lot of IP that has value there, I would think. I remember so many of these. It's so sad. <laughs> one of the largest one was Kibi, Was that um, vertical video uh, streaming platform?
3: Well, it was that? launched literally at the beginning of lockdown, the COVID lockdowns. And so their whole idea was to shorten videos and news information into tiny sound bites because we're all so scattered and don't have much time mm-hmm. and thus little attention. And then all of a sudden everybody had all this time and attention because they were all at home all the time.
0: And it did not work.
3: It no, no, and people had hours all. and hours on hand. They weren't going anywhere or talking to anybody else because everybody was frightened out of their minds. People wanted to watch longer form stuff to keep them occupied. So it 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 was terrible timing, man. That that's really a kick in the ass.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like some of these stories, like there's some there's all kinds of interesting stories buried in here. Theranos is in here, obviously that's a ridiculously huge story. But but also like some of these end up with the founder going to jail. Um, yeah, I would a lot just-
2: of. I was just skimming through them and seeing things like new entirely new executive team brought in unfortunately by the time they were brought in uh, it, the financial things were too dire we killed the whole company like holy smokes
3: i mean how how does it get there without any red flags obviously there are red flags but somebody's doing a good job at hiding them
0: H- mm-hmm. hands off uh investors maybe hands off board i I don't know yeah, good thing,
2: good thing there was governance on the board for these.
0: One of my favorites uh, on here is Quirky. Quirky made some really cool products. So the idea was anybody could invent a product, and they basically send off their invention, their designs, to Quirky. And Quirky will do all the, like, the formal d- blueprinting, manufacturing, marketing, retailing, all that stuff. And it's neat. You buy the product and it's got like a bio of the inventor on, on, on the back of the product. You know, and the inv- inventors were anybody from like teenagers to retired folks. Uh, really cool idea. But, y- you know, it didn't work because this is all um, low quantity, you know, high profit margin manufacturing. You know like like they couldn't they couldn't get the uh, the scale needed for this to be to be profitable, which really made me sad. I, I actually still use some of the products from uh, Quirky. So this is this little cable holder thing here. Uh, this is quirky. Yeah, I remember is, quirky for sure. And then they had one that uh, held your MacBook charger and the entire cable could roll up and fit inside the Macbook charger and then it closed around it so you didn't have any loose cables uh, flying around in your bags when you packed up your Macbook charger had some neat stuff.
2: Yeah, I you know again I wonder how accurate some of this data is meaning uh, like it says they're all, you know, deaths or failures or whatever but Clout for example, if you go to KLOUT on here. Yeah, yeah. Clout was in 2009. I remember Clout. Um, I paid attention to. to it for a bit um yeah. they raised 40 million eventually it was sold in 2014 for 200 million i'm i'm not entirely sure how that is a failure but you know it's on the failure list here so some of them i'm not sure are failures in the sense that we we are talking like they go to zero and die but there's definitely yeah,
0: some yeah I, I mean if they had a successful exit and somebody else mismanaged it yeah that that's um that's different than what i think we're you know sh- should really be on this list yeah um but yeah interesting list and interesting that there are no uh there there are no security companies on this list that I could find
3: no there were, there, like I said there were a couple adjacent spaces I found two more a Semper technologies private provider of real-time recovery management and continuous data protection that's one here and then this what, true Sand networks so so not necessarily squarely in cyber but, but at uh, least okay yeah I see adjacent here. Yeah. yeah, Not that I think, you know, hey, let's put cyber companies on this list. Let's see them fail. Of course not. Um, But I think this is a nice uh, spread across industries is what I'm saying.
0: But it's interesting, you know, um, Will Lynn, like basically he was saying uh, that some of this is underreported when security companies do set fail. So, I think that would be interesting to see somebody do to to actually do kind of a write up of of some of the security companies that did fail and why they failed. Um, God, I think. It would be excellent. let's do it. Yeah, it's abso- Yeah, I've not seen anybody do it. I actually have some notes on that topic. You know, like Norse uh, is a very interesting case. Norse Networks. Uh, everybody okay. remembers yeah. them imploding like days before RSA 2016. I think it was. And their names mm-hmm. were even printed on the lanyards. So everybody was walking <laughs> around with seeing Norris's name everywhere. And there was this big news story. It basically said, like, you know, the founders are locked out of the building and can't get in and they don't know why or something like that. Like, it was very mysterious sounding.
5: Uh-huh.
0: And basically, they brought in a whole new management team, reincorporated the company under a different name. And the uh, last time I checked, the company still existed. And a lot of people like they they assumed the company just died right there, you know. But it was a lot more complex than that. In fact, um, one of the original founders was still there, and not too long ago, like two years ago, uh, was granted a patent on the Pew Pew map, <laughs> on the on, on the Norse uh, like the where the map of the globe, and you know it looks like war games. You know, there's there's uh, little missile bombs flying and stuff like that. Like uh, they received a patent on that
3: nice
0: so i'm sure there's some interesting stories there if we dig into that tyler we'll, we'll have to write that absolutely oh right um you know a lot of these aren't terribly interesting funding items threat locker is kind of interesting i'd never heard of threat locker uh and, and i saw a note on there that 23,000 organizations are using their product. And I was thinking, who the heck are these guys? And how are they? They've got $100 million Series C and 23,000 customers? Surely they're white labeling or something like that. And it does sound like the, the situation. Uh, it looks like they sell to MS, MSPs. And they say over 2,000 MSPs are using them. And basically, I found a story that said, um, I've actually got a quote here, ThreatLocker co-founder and CEO Danny Jenkins says his company experienced record sales growth in July in the wake of the Kaseya ransomware attack and is adding mm-hmm. 60,000 new seats a month to its application whitelisting solution.
2: Yeah, likely sold one or two MSSPs that then went and resold it to every single one of their customer.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, that that's... Uh, Right place, right time, I guess. Crazy growth yeah. there. Uh, Obsidian, you know, we talked about that market, so I'm not going to touch on that too much. That's SaaS security or SSPM, as uh, Willen taught us a new acronym today. Uh, SAS security posture management. And they've got uh, 90 million. That's a, I think that's a series B, I want to say. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh let's see. I think it's interesting Blue Shift is doing SaaS as a service or XDR for small businesses. Be interested to see like yeah, it's always a challenging market to go after. You know, and generally it has to be a, a a sales channel thing. You know, it has to be something where you're actually selling to MSPs or um you know, telcos or something like that. And in fact, one of the ones on this list that's selling to telcos was insurance.io, which is like cybersecurity insurance for consumers, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's number 11.
2: Four million series, four million series A. Yeah, tiny uh,
0: Israeli company. Look, like, uh,
2: if you read the article, they closed a the four million series A funding round, allowing Tech Mahindra to acquire 25% of the company at $4 million.
3: Wow
2: so 16 million dollar valuation
0: yeah yeah no, it, it's a weird one for sure I mean consumer you know maybe that's why it's because <laughs> it's consumer focused and uh, I'm not sure consumers want personal cyber insurance or, or particularly need it but it's uh, it sounds like it, it would be part of you know a bundle or a rundle that you get from whoever provides you your cell phone or your internet service is what I'm guessing
3: uh, hmm. Kind
0: of an addition to a life lock type of thing that exactly. some people buy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's see. So SEC is um, so. So this is uh, part part of the reason I included this article number fifteen is uh, I, I think they kind of read this wrong or they're reading it this way in purpose. or or they're kind of reading into what they think is going to happen. But the title is, The SEC is about to force CISOs into America's boardrooms. And what (laughs) the actual proposal is, is that companies have to disclose how much cybersecurity experience is present at the board level. So maybe they're assuming that that's going to force, you know, because that would be embarrassing if they have no cybersecurity expertise, it's going to force boards to, you know, shove the CISOs in there or, you know, specifically go after. I, I think this would be a big boom to virtual CISO uh, services. Uh, just, just uh, super interesting. That's super improve. interesting.
2: Yeah. Very rarely outside of cybersecurity companies do I see a ton of cybersecurity expertise on the board, like holding a board seat. You see yeah. them frequently in the board meeting. You see them on the exec team, but you very rarely see, like, a CISO on the board itself. So uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this has any impact, if it has any impact, on you know general businesses. Like if you look up, you know, the boards of of many of these high tech companies, most of them aren't going to have any security expertise on that board.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, uh, so if you look at you know, look through the article a little bit when you have some time, they talk to one board member who is on the board of cybersecurity companies. And also other boards. So it's that cross-referencing kind of thing. It's not, you know, hey, I'm from, I'm from the security world. It's more like, hey, I've sat on the board of the security company, so now I know a little bit about security. And that's a little dangerous.
0: Well, and that's <laughs> that's what it is. That's what I was going to talk about is, is how expertise is defined is not something they're going to do. So they, they actually threw out a few bullet points, which uh, do get quoted in the article. And one of them is you know whether or not the director's obtained a certification or a degree in cybersecurity, you know, so somebody's gonna come up with a, a board cyber certification that's like a 16 minute Facebook uh, quiz or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I can see that being abused and do you and, click uh, on a
3: link from an unknown sender? No, okay, you're on a board.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have
3: I've cyber passed, cybersecurity I've passed
0: all my Notebook trainings. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep. I've seen so, every, yeah. I've seen every episode of The Inside Man on No Before, so therefore I'm certified.
0: There you go. You are. I saw the first one. I did. I, I didn't watch the rest. How that could many. you miss it, man? It's it's Netflix worthy. Come on. It, it is pretty good, but um, uh, my time is stretched thin lately.
3: <laughs> because wait, you have B-Sides Knoxville coming up. Is that right?
0: I do. Where'd you hear when that? When is that?
3: Where is it?
0: <laughs> that is that, where where is besides Knoxville?
3: Well specifically it's in obvious. Georgia. Oh, it's <laughs> you make look stupid, Adrian. <laughs> where in Knoxville.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, I wish you all could come. Uh, Katie has actually been there before uh, and has spoken before. So very very cool tell to We where
3: in Knoxville and when it's occurring, so if they want to come, they can come.
0: Yeah, it's, it's May 13th, uh, which is a Friday. It's Friday the 13th. It's all day, starts at nine, goes to six. And uh, we feed you breakfast and, and lunch. It's $25 a ticket. Uh, it's going to be two tracks, uh, 15 talks, including the keynote. Uh, all very high quality talks. A lot of interesting stuff. Really cool venue. Uh, we're never going to be in a hotel. Like we're very specific vibe that we try and have with our with our conferences. So it's it's a good time if you're within driving distance or anything like that, uh, to, to Knoxville highly recommend checking it out besides Knoxville.com. If you want to grab a ticket. Um, yeah, Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We haven't had a physical event since 2019. We had to do two virtuals because of the pandemic. So we're very, very excited to get back to in-person at our, our brand new venue, which we're using for the first time. All right. Th- thanks for that, Katie, <laughs> for, that, for that subtle hint to, yeah, mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to plug B-Sides Knoxville. Um, let's see. What else here? Um, Tyler, did, um, you got a chance to listen to that uh, interview with Alfred uh, Huger. Do you want to talk about that for a moment?
2: Yeah, yeah. I got about halfway through that interview before I got sidetracked for other uh, work type uh, type issues but um super interesting interview with el huger for those of you that don't know el he comes from old school cybersecurity, way 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 back in the day he eventually created uh security focus i think was his uh there were a number of businesses he's created i think he was involved in iss early on i don't remember all of them but he he talks about it in the in the opening to this interview, I highly recommend you listen to it. He, he is one of those guys that transcends from ideation entrepreneur security expert all the way up through like, I can run a business. I can run a business unit. I know how to build businesses. I know how to market businesses. Uh, it was just an amazing like true, true straight talk and that's what they call it. Straight talk style interview um, of someone who I just have a lot of respect for. He recently left Cisco to go found another new company, and it's kind of freed him up to again not have to be limited by PR and what he can and can't say. And I highly recommend um, you know getting in there and listening to what he has to say about cybersecurity startups and other other technology building technology
0: companies. So much experience, great advice. And at this point, I want to jump to the squirrel story. Uh, we had some great interviews and conversations today, but we are running a bit long. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so this squirrel story, you know, I, I tend to go for something you know, a little lighter. Um, but I, I I came across this, you know because a lot of my sources for the stories for the funding announcements for m and a uh, are not specific to security. They cover the whole market. so i I usually read, Uh, A lot of that other stuff, a lot of, you know, I like to check out what's happening in other industries, what's hot there. And so I I came across this Binah.ai. I'm not even sure how to say that correctly. Um, B-I-N-A-H.ai is the website. And it's a health data platform. And they're basically claiming they can grab, like, like stuff that the average smartwatch doesn't even grab, uh, you know, unless you get, like, a really fancy one. Just from the camera on your phone or even from a webcam, they're saying. No So way. No simply way. Simply by pointing video at you, they claim to be able to measure accurately measure blood pressure, heart rate, heart rate variability, oxygen saturation, respiration rate. Okay, it's pretty easy. Like you can watch your chest move maybe, sympathetic stress, parasympathetic activity, and pulse respiration quotient. Oxygen nope. saturation from
2: no nope. video, nope, absolutely not, a hundred percent. I had a
3: doctor's heart. appointment a couple weeks ago, and they couldn't even accurately take my resting heart rate in the office. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> All you gotta do is take a selfie and upload it to Binada okay. AI, and you know yeah. it'll it. It'll tell you your your white blood cell count.
2: <laughs> yeah, I suggest we go ahead and let the squirrels take this one back to their home because
0: it's it's nutty. It is it,
1: totally it's nutty. nuts. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. It, it really, really is. Yeah, there there's some. Yeah, it, they actually link to some research uh, in there. You know, so maybe they have academic research they can point to, but. Even that's that's not convincing me because a lot of that stuff like is at very experimental stages. Like I, I don't see being able to do that with general consumer devices that you just happen to be holding. I can't even do Windows Hello with any of the webcams that I own because you need a special webcam that has the like uh, you know throws infrared light or something like that because you know they don't want face you know tracking for that kind of stuff to to force you to have to turn on a light every time you want to log into something. You know, like, if you had to have proper lighting every time you use Face ID, people would just stop using Face ID. So, yeah. like, I, I can't even use my face to log in on any of the hardware I own with, with Microsoft uh, Windows Hello. And, and they're saying they can tell me my oxygen saturation? I don't no know why. buy it.
2: Nope. Hard
0: no. All right. And with that, uh, with that hard nope, it's time to hard nope out of this podcast. Uh, thank you uh, for for those that made it through today. Today's a uh, an extra long one. I think we had a good time. We had a lot of fun, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Uh, thanks, Tyler, uh, for joining us. Thanks, Katie. <laughs> And a big thanks to everyone watching or listening to this week's episode. Sometimes you got to be watching a video to, you know, otherwise you're you're not going to get some of those awkward, uh, wonderful silences we have on the show. But thanks to everybody for watching or listening to this week's episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. Have a great day.